It's that time of the week again. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop! It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris as they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. As well as the music of today. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Digital Kill the Radio Star starts right now. (laughs) All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. We told you last time it wasn't going to be that long in between episodes, and I think this one's only about a week and a half. After our year-end episode, so Chris, we're back at it again. The year-end episode went well and uh, got a lot of downloads. I think people always enjoy that one. That's good. I had fun doing that. And, uh, you know, I texted uh, text David after that and told him how I had a good time doing it. And I said, we ought to ramp this up and do more going on. And I think he was a little bit shocked by that because um, a lot of times I'm – I don't know. I, I think a lot of it, a lot of it, us not doing more is probably, uh, probably I am the problem on that. But uh, we didn't do a lot in 21, and I threw some ideas at him that uh, he he liked, and uh, he asked me about doing this album, and I thought, you know what, this is doing this podcast that we're going to talk about a particular album. I thought I don't do album reviews. I, I never like to do those. I've never done one, but I think this is just a unique record. I do too, and I I wish I had whose name it was tweeted us and said we should cover this one, and so I tagged Chris on it, and he's like, I'll do it. So uh, I'm really excited to do it. I think it's going to be fun. Uh, Chris has given me two more albums he's willing to do if as long as he doesn't lay a stinker in this one. So uh, hey, you you um, so you don't know the person who suggested this? I'll have to go back and look. And but you don't know you don't know them. Mm-mm. Uh, no. And then the uh, I, I didn't. One of the albums I told you about, because I won't give it away, but uh, well, we, we can talk offline, but an old buddy from college that I lived with in the same neighborhood as you, I, we've reconnected, and uh, I think he would come on for that. This is last name Ryan with Smeal? It does. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we reconnected. It's been, really, it's been really cool. He's doing well, and um, I mentioned that to him, and he's like, oh, yeah, hell yeah. Was it the uh, 80s synth pop album or the modern punk album? It okay. was. Yeah, it was. I'm all about that. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. So, there you got it. We're going to do, we're going to do, we know for sure we're going to do more. So, the album that we just decided to cover this week is REM's New Adventures in Hi-Fi. Also happens to be the 25th anniversary of the album. They just re-released it, remastered it, added some bonus tracks, some live tracks. And uh, sweetened up the sound just a little bit. Uh, if you go listen to the two different versions, this one's a little bit sweeter uh, sounding. Now, for a long time, I felt like I had to live in shame because I liked this album. 
because I have a couple of diehard REM fan, fans that just kind of like put their nose up at me when I would talk about how good this album is. So not being plugged into the REM community, I kind of thought this was what every REM fan thought about it. And I was like, well, I guess I'm a bad REM fan because I absolutely love it. And the more I've looked into it on REM message boards and stuff, realized, no, it's a cult classic. My friends, my couple of friends are the ones that are just plain wrong. And uh, plain wrong. (laughs) Anyway, and you do some deep diving on it, and Stipe thinks it's the best album the band ever put out. And it's his favorite album. And there's a song or two on here that he says that he thinks is the best stuff they've done. It came on the heels of Monster which uh, was a really big, loud rock album. And uh, a, a lot of this album was recorded on tour during sound checks, which is cool. And one of the songs was actually recorded at a show that Chris and I were at in 1995 in Memphis. It's my first REM show. I know it was Chris's. I, I went with a mutual friend of ours. So the album is very unique in that respect. And uh, from what I can gather, they got some of the idea to do this from Radiohead, who opened for them earlier, and Radiohead was do- recording songs that would come go on to be the bends while on the album. So this was kind of, um, to some extent, a uh, kind of a revolutionary thing. A lot of these songs got played live before the album came out, which is reminiscent of, if anybody's a Neil Young fan out there, he recorded a live album called Time Fades Away, and none of the songs had ever been recorded on an album before. And it's kind of a cult Neil Young classic. So this kind of had the feel to that. And like we said, it was released 25 years ago. It has moved 7 million units, which is uh, a lot. And it had four singles, Ebo the Letter, Bittersweet Me, Electrolyte, and How the West Was Won and Where It Got Us. So with that said, Chris, what are your th- overall thoughts on the album before we get into it? And how do you think it's perceived? Okay, so I'm gonna just take you back to this. I I um I bought this when it when it came out. I was a freshman in college, ninety six, and I probably got it in its first week of release. I, I don't remember exactly. Who knows? It may have been the day it came out. And I liked it and I listened to it a pretty good bit back then. I mean I liked it then. But it didn't really have the it didn't feel as as big, obviously, as I mean, the REM was on quite a run. If you think about about it, they um, I think they had three straight number one albums, didn't they? Well, I was going to say you 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 released Green, which was let's that was a big record, but then they come out with um, Out of Time, Automatic for the People, and Monster, and those were just huge, huge records, and. I think with this album, when it came out, it was the musical landscape. It was changing a bit. You had, you were starting to get more of the, the new metal was emerging. The, the boy bands, the, uh, the little pop darlings, uh, Brittany and Christina Aguilera, Jessica Simpson, all those hell Hanson was big. Chumbawamba. Uh, yeah, it was just the, the landscape was changing. And you think about Monster. That was released when the Nirvanas and the Soundgardens and the Alice in Chains ruled the world. And I think that that's a lot of the reason why you had Monster sound the way that it did. I don't think they were try- necessarily trying to make a grunge record, but it's loud. And it's probably the straightest, the most straight ahead 
just rock record they've ever released. And, and as a matter of fact, if if somebody's never really listened to REM, they never have, and they're a guy that we were talking about before we hit play on this, that you might have to listen to one of his records. Um, <laughs> uh, if I were to recommend an REM album to somebody like that, that's a big rock guy, I might say listen to Monster. And But this record, when it came out, I think was a combination of those sounds of Monster mixing in with a little bit of the out of time and automatic. And in some ways on some, on a couple of songs, I think they went a little bit further back. It, um, you know, it's, I, I read the same thing that you did, that it, it sold 7 million copies. And I was very, very surprised by that. Uh, I didn't think it sold that well because it didn't feel like it did. And honestly, I don't think that it did do that well commercially considering what the other records had done. And, I did put down here that in the U.S. it sold 994,000 records, which is a lot, but it's not a lot for an REM release. And I think this is one that was just had a couple of radio hits, not monster hits, but a couple of radio hits, and it it faded away quickly, and it seemed like a bit of a, a flop, but the critics loved it. And that's the thing. That's one thing I would say about this. Critics loved it. I put down a couple that, you know, even though it was a bit largely unnoticed, underappreciated, the critical reaction was very favorable. All Music gave it four out of five stars. Entertainment, Entertainment Weekly gave it an A. NME gave it an eight out of ten. Pitchfork, 9.5 out of ten. Rolling Stone, four and a half stars. Spin, six out of ten. It did very well, but... I agree with you too that even though it didn't it did not have the commercial success of the other records it seemed to be the forgotten REM album over time there is that cult that that cult following to it and it's in a way to me it's REM's pet sounds yeah they uh they put out one of their greatest records and people just weren't paying attention the same way the Beach Boys released pet sounds that's a pretty good analogy i think and now pet sounds is thought of as the great one of the greatest works of art musically that's ever been released but at the time it wasn't surfing usa barbara ann and uh it it was forgotten at that time pushed aside well we also need to note this would also be the last album with the classic lineup bill barry would go on to leave before the next album and <clears throat> man they they had a hot hand and they went cold really quick for about yeah. three albums up until uh, Accelerate. Accelerate this, and the last album I thought were really good. That's exactly what I put in my notes. I said that this was um, it was the last album to feature Bill Berry. People that don't know, he had a brain aneurysm on, on uh, it was a monster tour. Did the last record? They uh, they depart. They, he left the band as friends and. Cool story I've always heard, and I know you've heard this too, David, so I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it is true. Actually, I think I've heard Darnian members say this. It's, I don't think it's just rumor. I think I've heard them say it in interviews that Bill Barry flat out, yeah, I've heard Bill Barry say this. He said, if my leaving breaks up the band, I'm not leaving. That's true. And, and they said, no, go ahead. I mean, they were friends. They're still friends. So they le- he left on really good terms, and I put that this was the last great in my opinion, this is the last great REM record. And they did release the last two. Claps in the Nail and Accelerate were good. 
but I put that this was that they didn't even make another what I consider a good album until Accelerate. They had uh, just a few. They had a few stinkers in there. Up around the sun, uh, reveal. Where, uh, reveal, man, where, that's bad. We're borderline horrific, but they did give us this album. So let's hop into it. This is Chris's first time doing this, and he's going to do great. I have all the confidence in the world in him. All right, I'll take the first song, How the West Was Won and Where It Got Us. I think this is a very interesting way to start this album. This isn't like a traditional um, album opener. And to me, this sound, this song sounds like it would have fit better on Out of Time or Automatic for the People. The song starts with a very light percussion and then an oddly timed piano riff begins, which repeats over the song. Um, I think it has a cool layered vibe with it and... Um, the piano is the main instrument for the song in which usually when REM has a song that the piano is the main instrument, it's pretty good. It was the fourth and final single to be released from the album. And I don't think it's a bad song, but to me, sonically, it just doesn't fit with the album. And one of the themes we'll have on this, you have to be really careful when trying to interpret Michael Stipe's lyrics. And he'll even tell you a lot of times he doesn't know what the song is about. Um, based on kind of my understanding and doing some research around it, uh, I think the song has to do basically with the advancement of man. And we have all of these, for lack of a better word, toys and, uh, you know, things that we can do that our ancestors couldn't do, but the world's not any better off for it. And just kind of an inability to learn from mistakes. So I don't think it's a bad song. I just don't think it fits with the album. And I for sure don't think it's an album opener. Yeah. Um, no, I, uh, Wow, I just I just realized I put the wrong note on one of these songs. I'm I'm reading a couple of my notes. It's like, oh wow, I put this. That's the wrong one. So I'm not going to read this in the first note I had. Okay, so first thing I would say, you said a single. I I this is not single material. Uh, that's the first thing I would say about this song. I think that in a lot of ways, and it is an interesting opener, as you said. I um, and I did put that it is a very solid opener, and it uh. To me, there are elements to this song, as a lot of them are, really. But there are elements of those 90s monster hits, our monster records, Out of Time and Automatic for the People. I think there's elements there on this one. And um, it, was a weird, it was a weird choice for an opener, I guess. Um, I'm like you. Man, you can try all you want to understand Stipe's lyrics and what he's singing about. But... There aren't a lot of instances where it's just clear, just just cut and dry. Uh, I think your insight is pretty good. Um, there's also just a lot of singing about, quite frankly, bad luck in this song and having bad luck. But I like this one. And um, yeah, a little bit different for an opener, but it is a good track. All right, Chris, number two is Wake Up Bomb. Man, this one's a banger. I'll tell you that. I, I've always loved this song. And um it's up there probably, at least in the upper half for me on this, that uh, that intro, I look good in a glass pack, the way he just, which, what in the hell that means, I don't know, but hey, we just talked about it, you don't ever understand what Michael Stipe is singing about, but um, I put the, you know, a note I put on here, this easily could have been on Monster, easily, I mean, you could have made this the opening track on Monster, and this is a good opening song, by the way, and I think this would have been a good first song for uh, for Monster, and I think that it's... It should have been they, the first single. Yeah, yeah, you, you might be right there. And, and the fact that they were recording this record 
on tour, like you talked about, and on the road, I, I think you there's no way that as they're playing songs from Monster, you know, just about every night, every other night, there's there's no way that they can't have songs that sound like that. And this one, I mean, almost has a feel like, well, this may have been a leftover from Monster. As far as I know, it was not. But, um, you know, it was where the first song I, I put was a lot about bad luck. This one goes from bad luck to he's almost like a uh, a Gallagher brother on this one. <laughs> yeah, it's very arrogant, very, very cocky song. But then at the end, he goes from arrogant to almost uh, just a sense of regret for his behavior. But a uh, really, really cool song. Well, they name check T-Rex in it, and this could have been a T-Rex song. Um, I have, it should have been the album opener. It should have been the first single. It has like an 70s glam swagger to it. Uh, there are no bells and whistles on this. It's just straight up loud rock, which REM, when they want to, can do that really well. Um, I, you know, just kind of analyzing the lyrics and, and seeing what other people thought about it. It seems to be a general consensus. It's uh, it's a guy looking back on his um, youth and maybe thinking he was more hot stuff than he really was and then having a little bit regret about that, coming to terms with that. One of my favorite things about this is during the chorus, um, Peter Buck has a really cool chord progression that's just slightly back in the mix. You have to really listen to it, but it just gives it a great flow. And like I said, this for sure should have been the lead single. If I'm the if I'm the record company, this is what I lead with. All right, song number three, New Test Leper. This song was recorded at, it's one of the few studio songs. It was recorded at Bad Animal Studio in Seattle. Everybody knows that that's where Hart and a bunch of other people record. Um, I thought Michael Stipe sings kind of in a register that sounds a little bit different than normally what he sings in. The song is based on Michael Stipe watching an afternoon talk show, and one of the guests was saying that they were judged based on looks. And so he just invented this character that he's singing through. I don't think it's a bad song, but I just don't think it fits on the album the way other songs do, in my opinion. What do you think? I love this song, honestly. I think it's a beautiful song. And I think that this is one that it may not necessarily fit, but this is one that I think you throw on and maybe a little bit of changes to it, but I think you throw this one on New Adventures. And I think it flows very well. It's, um, this is new. Adventures. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, help me out. Uh, automatic for the people. Yeah. That's the one I was going for. I think it's one that could have fit on automatic for the people. So this one, like I said, I think it's a beautiful track and it, uh, to me, it seems like what, what he's singing about is though he's not a Christian and, he doesn't really he doesn't really belong to any kind of religious organization he's not really he's not a religious guy it seems like he really appreciates the ideals of christianity you know the one of the first lines you judge judge not lest you be judged and it just seems like as i said he appreciates a lot of the ideals of christianity but he just doesn't have a place in it, and it doesn't. He doesn't always fit in. Hence, leper. Never, I never really necessarily looked at though. That's pretty good uh, analysis. All right, Chris. Song number four is Undertow. Okay, this one is uh, just a really. I, what I love about this one is the bass tone. 
and the, just the sound. Really cool bass line on it. And oddly enough, and you're going to have to tell me, by the way, and this may be the one, but you're going to have to tell me because I don't remember. You've told me this before, but the one that they recorded in Memphis. It's not this one. But oddly enough, I still remember them playing this song. And, and it's weird that you remember an unreleased song on the Monster Tour. I'm in high school. They play this song, and I still remember it. And I think a lot of the reason why I remember it is they had – in the background on the big screens, they had this film going that was in black and white and it was all underwater, a bunch of swimming. And that always stands in my, just uh, that always stands out for me. I always remember that. But this one again, there's another one where he talks about religion. And I think it's a song about Stipe not needing or identifying at all with religion, but it's, it's a cool track. Possibly one of the best Mike Mills songs of all time. Um, it it starts off sonically and with a, a kind of a little disjointed with the bass groove, which is really cool. Uh, Mike Mills' bass is pretty much the lead instrument almost in this song. I think it's some of Mills' best backing vocals that he's ever put down. He's not harmonizing with Stipe. He's he's singing lead uh, on that chorus. Um, you know, people try to interpret this song from everything from him being an atheist to to a hopeless person that has been failed by religion, but not by God. Um, you know, and so much of Stipe's lyrics are open for interpretation that it all of that could be true or it could have been something else like, you know, him drown, him actually drowning in the water or something like that. Um, but anyway, I think it's a great song. It's one of their better ones. Um, that, that Mike Mills sings back up on, which he has, you know, obviously a ton of songs that he does great on. All right. Song number five, Ebo the letter. Now this was the opening, this was the lead single. And I read that the wall street journal interviewed the a Warner brothers executive and said the lead, this lead single hurt album sales. Mike Mills is on record as saying like, we picked this one cause we didn't think it was radio friendly. And he's like, maybe not the best way to go, but that's who we are. It's another song recorded in the studio at Bad Animals. And, um, you know, most people say it's partly about River Phoenix. And then the term Ebo refers to a device that picks up certain types of vibrations on a guitar string. Patti Smith provides the haunting backing vocals that give the song a very eerie feel. Uh, the song seems to be kind of a, string of, uh, a stream of conscious song, kind of like country feedback. I think it's a really, really good song. Probably one of their better songs. I do agree that this should not have been the lead single. Okay. Yeah. And we have some, some similarities, some similar comments on this. First of all, when you said uh, country feedback, I did put that it is, it's similar to that, the spoken word aspect of it, which I love. This is one of my two favorite songs on this record. Now, that being said, does it sound like a single? Not at all. And it is a weird choice. But here's what I will tell you. The um, friends of mine that are REM fans, we all agree the song's amazing. And, and D- David, did you have this in your top 20? It, we did just, that it just missed out. Okay, I couldn't remember it. But one of my friends at work, when I told him we were doing this, he's like, hell, I need to put together a top 20. And it made his. I think REM fans love this song. 
but to reach the masses that aren't really REM fans, that are just mute, just listening to the radio, it was probably a bad choice. But as I said, I loved it. I loved the spoken word aspect to it. Um, I mean, even when it was released, it was so different. It was so different coming off of the songs off of Monster that were the hit, hits off of that. You know, Crush with Eyeliner, um, um, What's the Frequency, Kenneth. It was it was definitely a different kind of song. But um, I, I put as well the the Patti Smith. I actually used the word eerie. I, I love, love, love her contribution to this song. She sounds so cool in it. And I, I don't, you tried to put, you said maybe River Phoenix. You don't, I don't have a clue what he's talking about on this one. And I'm not going to even pretend. It, this is... This is as difficult to decipher as any R.E.M. song, lyrically. But the final thing I'll say about this is the line, will you live to 83? Will you ever welcome me? Man, to this day, that still gives me chills. It still does. I don't know what it is about it. It's just something about, it's something with his voice, the way that the voice sounds. And there's such a desperation in his voice that he's almost quivering when he says it. Um, man, I love that line. I mean, that, that is the part every time when it comes up, I, I just really, I focus on that one part in particular. All right. Song number six is leave. Tell us about it. Leave is going to be, uh, it's one of my, I just said, Ebo, the letter is one of my two favorites. This is one of my other two. And I go back and forth as far as which one is truly my favorite. This song is incredible the intro pure brilliance the way that comes in and the siren when it comes in that really should be annoying it should annoy the hell out of me but it's perfect and everything about this there's just so much sadness and despair in the vocals and the last note that I put on here is what is he leaving behind? I, I, I don't know. I don't know what he's really going for in this song. Quite possibly my favorite track on the album. Um, the song starts with a very almost classical slash flamenco style of guitar playing. And then the siren slash, you know, I don't know if that's a sample, a loop or a DJ scratching all the way through it, but it sounds like a siren. That was very kind of on the front end of, that kind of stuff being incorporated into rock music. So they were a little bit on the front end of that one. Uh, I have put here that the loop was groundbreaking at the time for a conventional rock band. Not only is this one of their best, best songs on the album, I think it's one of their best period. I think we both had it in our top 20. Yes. Um, the, the chorus, Michael Stipe is pouring a lot of emotion into it and you can feel it. And I think we're kind of getting to the part of the album that a lot of people reference that so much of this was done on the Monster Tour. And I don't think they really toured for Out of Time or Automatic for the People. So they'd been off the road for a while. So when they do this, they're getting road-weary pretty quick. And, you know, there's several songs on this album all about traveling and leaving. And, you know, maybe it's a metaphor for other things. Maybe it's not. But, man, this one... Um, this is one that if I, if they were ever reunite, I want this one on the set list for sure. Um, some of Stipe's best vocals, uh, some of his most moving vocals that there's just pure pain and anguish during the course of this song. Yeah, uh, I agree. And I, I'm with, I'm with you. Uh, this is one that they do get together. I'm like you, please don't leave this one out. All right. 
the next song is Departure, which was recorded at the concert that Chris and I went to in Memphis. It wasn't played during the show, but it was recorded at Soundcheck. Uh, I have a little background here about, you know, they'd basically gone two album cycles without touring up until Monster. Um, you know, th- this song, I don't think there's any ambiguity about this. This is about the, you know, the pain of being a traveling band and how it moves at such a dizzying pace. And you're in one, you know, he name checks a bunch of city, a bunch of different cities. I, I think this is another like really good, fun, straight up rock song. Um, not necessarily fun, but it has an up tempo beat, and you, you know you have to listen to the lyrics to get that there's some despair in it. But <clears throat> just a, a banger of a song on the, on a good rock album. Yeah, I think this is another one that would have fit well on Monster. The uh, this has the classic just word explosion uh, that REM has the early REM records, in my opinion. It it's a throwback to that just. So many words. The uh, the background vocals, classic Mike Mills. His backgrounds on this song are just killer. Uh, uh, to me, it's one of his best on on that record as far as Mike Mills' contribution. The uh, the bridge, killer bridge. I, I love the guitar tone by Peter Buck on this one. And like you said, song about travel. And I, I don't think we're um reading in too deep to think that it's probably about touring yeah i don't think there's any question about um that at all which is uh which is it's nice to have a straightforward lyrical song on the album (laughs) it doesn't happen often all right so bittersweet me the second single i really thought this had more of a classic rem sound and i i said that this i know i keep saying where it could have fit on another album I know this is one album, a cohesive unit, and I like the way everything flows on this, but I do think this is one that could have fit on green. Um, really, really good song. Uh, I don't, again, common. <laughs> this is a common thing we're going to, we're talking about on this podcast. We don't understand. You don't always know what he's talking about. This just, the lyrics on this one just suggest not being fulfilled, not being fulfilled in life. Yeah. Um, this you could have made a case for this being the lead single too. Oddly enough, this song's never been played live, which I think is pretty weird. That is weird. I, I, I on the soapbox here for a second, don't record something if you're not willing to play it live. I, I just don't see the point in it. I really respect bands that play their, you know, full catalog. Uh, the Black Crows, to my knowledge, only have one song they've ever recorded on an album that they've never played live. Um, you know, and you go through all this time to put an album together and spend a lot of money on it, but then you don't want to play anything live either. You don't think it's good enough or you can't pull it off live. Obviously they could play, they think play wake up bomb. They can play this. Um, I kind of picked up that the song is about having it good and other people think you have it good, but you're discontent in your situation and, um, you don't think you have it as great as other people do. And people are just saying you kind of have a bittersweet attitude, but this is one of the better rock songs in their catalog. And I, I think it could have, could have possibly been a lead single. All right. Number nine, be mine. Sonically, this song reminds me a lot of let me in off monster, except the vocals are a little higher than they were on let me in. <clears throat> Oddly enough, REM does really good with loud, distorted guitars uh, without drums and uh, or minimal drumming. 
and Michael Stipe singing. He, he does that on a couple of songs. Um, on the surface, this seems to be a beautiful love song, kind of like a pledge of undying love. If you just let me commit to you, kind of like, you know, you're my religion and you're my world, but I can't help but think there's a darker meaning to it. Kind of like, uh, this one goes out to the one I love or something along those lines. It's just too, it seems to be too sweet of a song, but it's another great song on this album that, that I really like. I think you're probably right about Stipe and his lyricism on this and the meaning behind it. However, this is one that you could, um, I'm taking you back folks. If you're a younger, younger generation, um, David, this could be one that as you're mix, making a mixtape for a girl, yeah, you put this one on there. So it, it, it is that beautiful, sweet love song. And I think as far as this REM love songs, if that's what we're going to call it, I think it's right up there with at my most beautiful, I, I don't love the album up, but I love At My Most Beautiful. Right. I think that is an amazing song by them. And I think this is right up there for them with love songs. And in some ways, I think it was a little bit of a precursor to Up. It's much, though it's much, much better than 90% of what's on Up. Might have been a precursor of what was to come. I agree. All right. Binky the Doormat. I don't have a lot to say about this one. Oh, I do. I'm going to say that it is my... Oh, good. Good. You'll carry it then. I'll just give the comments that I have on it. It's it's my least favorite on the song and the closest thing for me that's that's filler. That being said, I don't hate it. I don't. And that's what makes a great record. When even... There's nothing skippable on here. I'm going to... Okay, Butch Walker has a song called Mixtape where he says, even the bad songs ain't so bad. He says in the lyrics... That's what this is. Even the bad songs ain't so bad. Meaning, this is a weak track on on a great album. It's not a bad song. No. Um, the award for best song title on the album goes to this song. Um, so, <clears throat> I think this is one of the more disturbing songs in the REM catalog. Um, I think it's about date rape. Um, it's got the line talking about putting somebody in the bathroom shut your door open wide this is why i think that Seekinol and astroglide Seekinol is a barbiturate uh that was real popular in the 60s and 70s can be used to drug women knocks them out astroglide's obviously lubricant um but at the same time mike mills may have some of his best backing vocals on this he really it's almost like a call and effect response to it but uh and you know, there's apparently a movie or something or a cartoon or something about Binky the doormat. Somebody lets themselves get walked all over. But there's in one one um, commentary I read on it said they thought it was about like really rough sex. Um, but then the consensus kind of seems to be at least that second verse is about date raping somebody. So obviously Stipe's singing through somebody in with Michael Stipe could have been completely wrong. It could have been about a doormat people walk on. Who knows? But if you if you take the, that second verse and analyze it, it's either about rape or some pretty uh, pretty kinky sex. All right, Chris. The next song, Zither. I have worthless instrumental next to it. You got anything? I don't think it's worthless. I I, I think it has a cool sound to it. Um. And I think it's a really cool it's a really cool guitar work by by Buck. I, I don't 
there's not a lot we could possibly say about this, but I don't think it's worthless. I don't hate it. And if you're listening to the album as a whole, there's no reason to hit skip. I mean, plus it's only what little over a minute long, I think. Yeah. I just don't think it fits. Yeah. I I don't know. Do you, are you aware of them doing an instrumental on an album? Uh, yeah, they did one on, um, on, uh, I can't think of the name, but they did one on, uh, automatic. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. It's like instrumental number something or something like that. Yeah. 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 And there may be more, but that uh, you're, you're, you gave me a question I wasn't prepared for. So there may be more, but that one did pop in my head immediately. All right. You got the next song. Okay. So fast. So numb. I thought this one had a little bit of a retro REM sound to it. Um, it's it's a it's a really solid one. I think that the I think it's got a really strong chorus to it. I I do like this song. I it's it's the bottom half for me. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't like it because I do like it. I think it's a good song. There's just not a lot for me to say on this one. All right, another one of the most obvious lyrical moments of the album. This is clearly about being a drug addict, and there is references to River Phoenix in it. Um, you know, you got the need to recreate the high, even though you hate that you love it so much. Um, you know, it talks about adrenaline and other things in there. And the, obviously it's about, you know, really getting high. One of the things I like about it is the cadence during the verses has almost like a cool galloping feel to it that really kind of gets you pumped up. I have on here, this chorus is arena rock ready and Mike Mills vocals. Again, he's the secret weapon add a ton to this especially on the course all right track number 13 low desert i have on here this is the sneaky good song on the album it's one on on first listen probably doesn't grab your attention but the more you listen to it at least for me it gets better the beginning almost sounds like uh the the instrumentation almost sounds like it could have been like a soundtrack to a western movie uh feel at the beginning but then i really love the inner the interlude you know Peter Buck really doesn't do guitar solos. So it's just kind of, he's just kind of playing over the melody and I can't tell what kind of effect he's playing on his guitar, but it's almost a floating like feeling. Uh, and to me, it sticks out different than anything else they've recorded. The first verse is obviously about a car crash, but I think the overall vibe of the song is the feeling of being stuck in something that you can't get out of. Um, and like we say, you know, broken record here, who knows with Michael Stipe, but that seems to be the consensus of what it's about. And reading the lyrics, I, I think I tend to agree with that. Okay, this one is like, it's right there with uh, Binky the Doormat as far as one of my least favorites on the album. And I still go back to uh, even the even the bad songs ain't so bad. And, and I say that just lightly. I, I don't think it's a bad song. It's, um, I do still like it. Uh, I, I think that this one too does have elements to Monster. So maybe it was a little bit of a carryover to that sound. Um, like I said, not a bad song, just not a lot to contribute to that one. All right, the closer, Electrolyte. Electrolyte. Okay, the third single, it's probably my third favorite on the album, which is probably makes me a little bit different than a lot of REM fans because this is one that people just love this song. You know, Tom York, who is a big REM fan, has said this is his favorite REM song. I think it's his favorite record by them and his favorite song Stipe by them. has said it's his favorite song he's ever written. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, hey, two musicians saying that. But I, a lot of fans love this song, 
our mutual friend who never listens to this record, just talks about how much he loves this song. I think it is probably the one that REM fans can agree on more than any on here. It seems like nobody dislikes it. It's uh, it's a fan favorite, fan favorite of the album. Sounds like a sweet love song, but a lot of theories say it's about alien abduction, and I don't really know. I haven't delved too deep into it, but that's what a lot of people say, alien abduction. All right. I have on here, it may be the gem of the album. I have it has a very automatic for the people vibe to it. Um, Stipe has said it's his favorite song he's ever written. Um, so here's my interpretation of it. It's completely different. It's a long goodbye to the 20th century. He name checks a lot of things from the 20th century. And, you know, he says 20th century, go to sleep. And at the end, you know, he's talking about, he's ready for change. So like, he's not going to look back on things forever and he's looking forward to the future. Uh, great piano heavy pop tune that's really what it is it's a pop tune it's a really kind of almost sugary sweet pop sounding tune tune but i mean this was in my top 20 uh rem songs and most diehard fans will tell you it's one of their favorite songs they always do a good job when it's them on the piano and it's kind of a you know um night swimming it's a great you know um song like that so we're closing it out with that. Um, man, you read the lyrics on that though. And you could almost, I mean, he didn't know it at the time. I don't think, but you could almost be like, they're saying goodbye to the old band because they're going forward, you know, going to be going forward with bill with, without bill Barry. So the band really changed at that point, but this is the last great REM album that they put out. And like we said, the last two were good. They were above average, but this is a great album. And um, it's a shame it doesn't get recognized by the general public as much as it should because it was a real gem of the 90s. I agree. And, you know, when you look at people that were not big REM fans, but they just, in a time when people bought music, if we go back to the good old days, when people bought music, this is one, they may not have been massive REM fans, but they buy the hit records. They're going and they're buying a copy of Out of Time. Maybe they're buying automatic for the people. They don't buy this one. It right. just, it, it seemed, it, it, a lot of people missed it. It's one that has aged incredibly well. As I said, I liked it when it came out. I liked it a lot when it came out. But it's, it, like, a, like as they always say, like a fine wine. It gets better with time. And, you know, we did an REM ranking of albums. I don't remember where it came in on mine, but I know it was in the it was in the top half. And you know, I think that's saying something when you say that this is the forgotten record of a band, and that they were, you know, so far into their career and they put this out, and you know, things just went downhill after that. I mean, they they honestly did, and I wish more people had heard this. And if you're if you listen to David and I, and and you're not necessarily an REM fan, but you like some of the songs, and and you're not a big REM person, you probably so you probably haven't heard this record. Put it on, give it a chance. Uh, I, I think you would like it. It's um, it's a very solid record from beginning to end. And as we said, the bad songs ain't so bad. So what a point is you don't it's you don't have to skip. Just a great great record. Yep. Chris, you did a good job. Did you have fun? I did. 
I liked it. Like I said, there's a, uh, and you know, it, for me to do this, it has to be a few albums. And I'm, like I said, I thought this was unique to do about this album. You know, I, I don't want to do the one that every single person has talked about. And I know people haven't talked about this one. And, um, you know, for me typically to do, if I'm going to do an album, it has to be something special to me. And we've got a couple of them coming up and, uh, I think people will like them. We pretty much did disagree on anything. No, we didn't, because the ones that I said were the weaker tracks. You agreed. The my my two favorite ones. One of them for sure is one of your favorites, and the other you really hold in high regard. So it, yeah. No, we we agreed straight up. I mean, even the even the lead single, uh, opening track. We agreed on that. Everything about it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Scares yeah, no, me. This doesn't, this, doesn't, this doesn't feel right. It scares me. Next thing you know, you're going to call me and go, hey, man, I want to do a widespread panic album. And I'm going to be like, yeah, let's do the Misfits. And then, like, <laughs> then we know that, like, COVID, has, ki- COVID has killed everybody off or something. And it's just, uh, it's kind of like uh, that meme that came out during COVID. It was like, Keith Richards awakes from a long dream in a barren wasteland. In the far yeah. distance, he sees a shadowy figure. As he gets closer, it's Betty White with a sword. And she goes, we knew it was going to come to this. Now draw. Yeah, David's going to text me one day. Hey, man, y- you want to do a podcast about Agnostic Front? Yeah. <laughs> and then Chris is going to call my wife and go, he's either lost his mind or, so, or an alien has taken over his body. Hey, take him, take him to an asylum. Yeah. He's lost it. You're not safe. I want I want all songs to be two minutes long, three chords, <laughs> mixed poorly. Um, all right, everybody. So this was fun. We're gonna do it again. We have two more albums for sure that we're gonna do, and uh, we also have two more good ideas that uh, Chris gave me. What we'll probably do is we'll probably put the other two ideas in between the album reviews because we don't want to do. Just all album reviews, but the next two I think people are going to really like. We'll have a div- very diverse list. So, Chris, I took the liberty this time of picking the playout song, and I found a really cool live version of Electrolyte to play us out. So I'm not gonna, I'm not going to argue against that one. So here it is from the live at the BBC album, uh, and this is specifically taken from the John Peel session. So if you live over in England, you know that's a big deal on the BBC. So here's R.E.M. with Michael Stipe's favorite song, Electrolyte. Your eyes are burning holes through me I'm gasoline I'm burning clean Twentieth century Obscene. That is obscene.